0: I'm going to dive into the sermon this morning. If you have your Bible with you, open to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, we're in the second to last week of this series that we're calling Humankind. And, uh, and today, as we celebrate Palm Sunday, we're actually looking at the triumphal entry of Jesus, which uh, if you've been around church, if you grew up in church, the story that we're looking at today might be really familiar. It's one that you probably colored, you know, coloring pages when you were a kid telling this story, but... Um, Our familiarity sometimes means we miss certain things and we might be too familiar with the story to see the power of it. Um, Because in this story... Jesus does some things that are genuinely confusing. They're genuinely contradictory from how he normally behaves. Um, There's things that Jesus does here that if you really look at them objectively, they're sort of strange. And whenever I see something strange, whenever I'm looking at the Bible and there's something that's unusual, my assumption is I need to lean in and pay attention. Because more often than not, when Jesus does something confusing, that's the moment when I either learn something about him that I didn't see before, or I learn something about myself that he needs me to see. And so without saying much more about that, I want to dive into the text and then we'll unpack it together. So Matthew 21, beginning in verse one, it says this, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt and the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and they did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large cloud spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. We sang this this morning. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus then entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. You have read from the lips of children and infants. You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out to the city of Bethany where he spent the night. Now, there's a temptation for most of us when we read something in the Bible, to jump immediately to, what does this mean? What's the significance of this? Like, like, why does this matter to me? Like, what what, what, is, what significance does this have to me personally? But I really believe before you jump to meaning and significance, I think it's important that we, we take a step back and we observe the text. That we throw questions at it. That, that we try to observe certain things. That we see what's actually happening in the story. And, and there's some really interesting stuff. When you actually look at this a little more objectively, and you take a step back, there's some really interesting things that are taking place here. For example, one of my first observations is that this is really out of character for Jesus— when you look at this objectively, this is really strange. I'm um, thinking about this. Time and time again, when Jesus was healing people, like when Jesus touched somebody, when, had, when Jesus had compassion for somebody, or he was teaching a small group of people, there were realizations about who he was. There were, there were people, it was dawning on them who he might be. But more often than not, when Jesus did one of those things, he would say to the person he healed, don't tell anybody that, that this happened and don't tell anybody who I am. And he would slip away. He would slip away from the crowds and go to different cities. He was constantly downplaying the reality of who he might be in people's eyes and sort of enigmatic as he moved through his days. But then we have this circumstance. I mean, th- there were exceptions when crowds gathered, but now this scene is completely different than any scene we've ever, we've ever observed before. Now Jesus is riding on a donkey while people are spreading their coats and palm branches before him on the road and they're shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Like, this is really out of sync from everything else. Think about it. Jesus was always sort of quiet, humble, moving in and out of the crowds. And now we have this moment. So we have to ask, well, what's going on here? Why the change? Why the shift? Why is Jesus suddenly behaving differently than he behaved before? So in order to answer that, you have to back up a few verses. If you back up into Matthew chapter 20, there's something remarkable that takes place. And you have to look closely but there's something else that's really unusual. And this explains the triumphal entry and what's taking place. So rewind a few verses, and let me just read about the moment before the moment that we're looking at today. Verse 29 of Matthew 20. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, so they're on their way to Jerusalem, they'd stopped in Jericho. A large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. When they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called to them, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. Now, you may look at this and say, well, why is this unusual? This looks like any other time when Jesus expressed compassion, when Jesus healed somebody. What's unique about this story? It's easy to get lost and like, this just looks like another example of Jesus doing what he's always done. But I want you to notice what the blind men said as Jesus was approaching. They call out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David is a messianic title. This is the name for the Messiah. This is a name that throughout the history of Israel, people have been talking about this one king that is to come. The final, the ultimate king, the Messiah who would reestablish God's reign. They've been predicting this person for centuries and he's called the son of David. And these men are calling out son of David Have mercy on us. Everybody in the crowd knew exactly what that title meant, and they knew what those men were saying. And we we don't know for sure why the crowd was silencing them, but we certainly know they understood the implications of what they were talking about. They knew who the son of David is supposed to be. And here's what's interesting. It's the first time that in public it's given to Jesus and he accepts the title. He receives it. He allows it to stick. Ultimate and long predicted King Messiah, have mercy on us. And Jesus goes, "That's me. What would you like for me to do? What would you like me to do for you?" And my guess is that there are people in the crowd that would have gasped in that moment. Why? Well. Because there were those that that had been close to him from the very beginning that had wanted Jesus to declare himself as king. They'd seen his power. They'd watched his miracles. They'd heard him teach. They knew what he was capable of. And so some of the closest people to him, they had this sneaking suspicion that this day was going to come. And so there had to be a part of him like, it's finally here. Like you're finally admitting that you are this person. You're making it public. Like is now when the revolution starts. See, there's implications to this. Jesus accepts the title, and now there's a crisis. Because this means in a nation that's occupied by a foreign government, he either needs to triumph and take the kingship, or he will be crushed by the authorities who have to quell any sort of uprising. So this is not a small thing. When Jesus allows himself to be called Messiah, there are implications for all of the crowd that is now along with him. In a nation that has been occupied and oppressed, a new king, but not just any king, the one who we've been waiting for has been announced. And when Jesus accepts this, you can imagine there must have been like a moment of joy and excitement among the people, but also a moment of terror realizing it's on now like the clock is ticking. Jesus is in this final make or break moment. And so that's the first thing when you observe this. This is Jesus is he's drawing our attention. There's something different now. There's an announcement that's been made. The second thing and again this seems a bit odd is that Jesus seems to orchestrate or arrange the triumphal entry. Um, The gospel writers, they're very concise. You'll notice this when you read them. They don't include tons of details, just the ones that are necessary. But Matthew includes six verses that describe Jesus arranging the triumphal entry. Um, to me, that feels like planning your own surprise birthday party in a way, right? Like there's something strange about this, right? And and for years I missed this. For years I just imagined that Jesus was so popular as he moved towards Jerusalem that the crowds were gathering. I never paid much attention to the details here. That the crowds just gathered and then they were just sort of propping him up and celebrating him, and he's getting more comfortable with the idea of announcing his messiahship. And so then you know at some point they say we want to just celebrate you into Jerusalem, and Jesus is like, well ah shucks, okay. If you guys insist, then I'll jump on a donkey and ride to Jerusalem. But he orchestrated this. He sends his disciples, it says, into Bethpage to get a donkey. Bethpage and Bethany, they're little um, kind of suburbs of Jerusalem. And, And Jesus knew these two places really well. He would know who had animals there. He would know where the animals were kept. He would probably have interacted with those families. Not only that, there was probably not another place where there was more support for Jesus than in these towns. The people living there, they had witnessed the power of Jesus. Jesus had spent time there. This is where the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, that's where their home is found. This is where people had watched Lazarus be risen from the dead. And so these people living in this community, they knew who he was. So he sends his disciples to get a donkey. And he doesn't send them in the night to steal a donkey. He sends them in in broad daylight to get a donkey. And do they bully the owner? Do they say, just give us the donkey and don't ask questions? No, they go. And Jesus actually says, if anybody asks, tell them this. So of course, right? Of course, they would have gone into town. They would have found this donkey. The guy with the donkey would ask the question you would ask if you owned a donkey right? You would ask, why do you want to use my donkey? And they would have said, because the Lord is riding it into Jerusalem. Do you think the word would spread in a town that loved Jesus and believed in him that Jesus was about to ride in to Jerusalem In fact, I want you to notice something about the text. If you look back, you'll see the crowd actually formed outside of Jerusalem. There's this idea sometimes that's been presented that the crowd that shouted, crucify him, was the crowd that ushered him into Jerusalem. But from this text, we see there are actually two different crowds. Matthew 21, verse 9 says, the crowds that went ahead of him, these are the ones that gathered outside of the walls of Jerusalem, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And then verse 10 says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and they asked, who is this? They didn't know who he was inside of Jerusalem when he entered in. They didn't know what the, what the circumstances were surrounding this. So Jesus, he brings his own crowd with him. He stirred this up. Like These people are from Bethany and Bethpage. And when they enter the city, it's so chaotic. Everyone's, what's going on? What's happening right here? So all of this points to the reality that Jesus arranged this. He arranged it. He set this up. And it would appear that Jesus is forcing the issue. He's ensured that he would enter Jerusalem being declared the king, and he's confronting the leaders in Jerusalem with the claim to his kingship. Isn't that interesting? So so Jesus is allowing this title to rest on him. He's arranging this circumstance. Another observation, third one. Don't you find it puzzling that Jesus chooses a donkey to ride in on? So for the first time, he accepts the title of Messiah publicly. He orchestrates this entrance into the city and then says, bring me a donkey. <laughs> and you have to imagine the disciples, they probably thought for a moment, like, did he say donkey? Like, he wants to ride in like a king on, like, kings don't ride donkeys, right? Kings ride horses. Who rides donkeys? Servants. Servants. Ride donkeys. This is not, this is not the animal that a king would ride. And the disciples, they have to be thinking to themselves like, Why a donkey? Why would you choose a donkey? Like you've finally gone public, you've finally announced your campaign for presidency, and you're choosing, like, you want to ride a donkey? Like, we need a PR firm to consult Jesus right now, because I don't think he understands the optics of this, right? These are bad optics. Are you going to ride in like a conquering king, Jesus? Are you going to continue to be this enigmatic figure who everyone's trying to understand? Which is it? So, Jesus is sending us some mixed signals. There's some really strange things happening here. So, what does all of this mean? What is all of this pointing to? Well, verse five, I believe, unlocks all of it, explains all of it to us, and it shows us who Jesus really is. So, look back with me again at this. Verse five. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Right here in this moment, Jesus is being revealed for who he is. Behold, your king comes to you, gentle. This is so rich. Now, Jesus has not simply allowed the title to be placed on him, but now Jesus is acting, moving, behaving in a manner that says, this is who I am. Jesus is being bold with this. I am your king. I'm your king. There's no denying it now. And then what does he do? He goes to the temple. What what is the temple? Well, the temple is God's house. And what does Jesus do when he gets to God's house? He says, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. My house. It's his house, he says. And then he starts rearranging the furniture like the owner of a house would, right? Flipping tables and moving benches and doing stuff. So you have to see that Jesus isn't just slipping in passively and sneakily into Jerusalem. He's being, he's, he's being bold with this. He's confronting us with his identity. Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he is confronting the community with his identity. This is who I am. And you are either going to need to crown me or kill me. You'll have to crown me or kill me. There's nothing in the middle. He's either the king or he's nothing. And he's making them decide. But I want to point out, this isn't just how Jesus enters cities. This is how Jesus enters lives. This is how he enters hearts. When it comes to your life, he'll do the exact same thing to you. And I hope you realize this. I'm not for a moment gonna suggest that Jesus isn't a gentleman or that he isn't kind. I mean, it even says here that Jesus is gentle, and I'll talk more about that in a few minutes, but I think with Jesus' gentleness, his kindness, we've somehow allowed ourselves to believe that Jesus is passive on what authority we give him over our lives. Like, you know, if I'm not comfortable with Jesus being king, maybe he can just be my, my friend, like my buddy, like Jesus is the best wingman you ever had, right? He'll be there for your support, He'll back you up in a pinch, but he's not going to tell you how to live your life, right? Jesus won't have it that way. You either crown me or you kill me. I'm either the king or I'm nothing. That's how ridiculously bold Jesus is being. I mean, just, just even when you think about this scene, Jesus is riding a donkey into the capital city of the region and all these people are waving palm frongs at him and, and they're shouting Hosanna in the highest. Can you imagine if I asked you guys to do that every time I walked up here on stage? Just like, wave those palm frongs. Like, first of all, like half of you would immediately go, that's a cult leader. That's number one, right? <laughs> then you'd watch my wife walk out because she knows what a knucklehead I am. She'd be like, I'm out of here. I can't sit through this, right? But Jesus leans in, leans into this and says, I am the one true king, and he rides into the capital with a, with a crowd. Like, think about this being Washington, D.C. Jesus riding into D.C. with a crowd around him, yelling, Hosanna in the highest, and then going to the Capitol building, the most revered place maybe in this nation, but th- this is the most revered nation- place in that nation. He goes to that place, calls it his house, and starts flipping tables over. You have to draw a conclusion about Jesus. You're forced to. And either Matthew is a delusional madman telling a story about an even more delusional madman or he's bringing us a confrontational truth about who the true king is. Crown me or kill me. So if you come to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I want you to be my comforter or I want you to be my counselor. I want you to be my advisor Do you know what he's going to say to you? He's going to say, I can be more than that. I can be more than that. I can be your friend. I can be your security. I can be your guide. I can be so much more than that. But first, you have to make me king if you want to experience all of those things, I have to be the king of your heart. Either I'm king in your life or I'm nothing. Which, By the way, this is one of the reasons why I think people express their disappointment with Jesus. They say, oh, I tried, I tried, you know, I tried and like, I feel like Jesus failed me. I feel like he wasn't there and, and, and I, I needed the comfort or I needed the friend or I needed the security and, and Jesus wasn't there. But, but I think oftentimes that they've experienced that because they never made him king. We get frustrated because Jesus lets us down, but is he really the king of our hearts? See, Jesus doesn't want to just be admired by you. He doesn't, he doesn't want to be liked by you. He doesn't just want to be believed in by you. Like, I believe that he, like, he wants and needs to be king. So is Jesus ruling your life? Is Jesus ruling your life? life? Does he have authority over you and your life? Here's the beautiful thing about King Jesus. He knows exactly how my asking you that question makes you feel inside. He knows how you feel. See, Deep down in our hearts is this desire or um, it's almost an entitlement. It's, it's, a, it's a right that we believe we need to defend. And that is that nobody can tell me how to live my life. We're smart enough not to say that out loud too many times in our lives. Maybe when we're children, we're a little more vocal about it. But, but, but deep down, deep down, we bristle when somebody tries to tell us what to do or we get outraged when somebody asserts their authority over us, and we don't think they should. Um, if you don't believe me, I have one word for you: masks. <laughs> Too soon, right? See, <laughs> deep down in our in our being, deep deep down inside of us, there is this indistinguishable, relentless idea that I am my own master. I am my own master. So when I say something like, is Jesus the king of your life? Or when I say he he needs you to make him king, there is likely on some level, some degree of resistance in most of us in the room. In fact, if you don't have that resistance or you don't feel that resistance to submitting that authority to Jesus, then you're a lot better than me, that's for sure. But again, this is where Jesus is so remarkable because he says, make me king, give me authority. And then he says, now somebody bring me that donkey. What? A donkey? Any king who rides into battle on the back of a donkey is going to get slaughtered. Kings don't ride donkeys. Kings don't come gentle. Kings ride horses. Kings are forceful, but not this one. So what is Jesus doing When Jesus announces himself as king and then rides a donkey, what is he doing? It turns out Jesus is the originator of the Jedi mind trick, just so you know. (laughs) He knows the human heart. He knows the human will. And he knows how you and I respond to a show of force. So he comes as a king, but he comes gently. He comes gently. In fact, right here, there's a picture of the gospel. Remember, the donkey is what servants ride. Well, sin, what is sin? And I'm not talking about sins. I'm not talking about individual behaviors. I'm talking about that root, that big thing that causes us to do the things we don't want to do. What is sin? Well, ultimately, it's that thing in our nature that I was just talking about. It's the servant putting himself or herself in the place of the king. But notice with Jesus that salvation comes when the king puts himself in the place of a servant. It's a picture of the gospel. That's the paradox of King Jesus. King Jesus comes and he takes the position of a servant and he uproots that thing that's inside of us that wants to resist his authority in our lives. Isn't this interesting? Like, unless you're a total narcissist, which um, maybe you don't want to answer this question out loud because it might reveal that you are. I'm not going to suggest that you are. But unless you're a total narcissist, you don't lose respect for people who sacrificially serve you. When somebody goes above and beyond to do something really nice for you, when someone does something unexpected, when something does something that you needed that you didn't even know you needed, but you needed it, when someone does that to you, you don't lose respect for them. They don't lose authority in your life. Again, don't answer that if you're a narcissist, because if you do, that might be a problem. But, but what, what happens to most of us? Our respect for them grows, right? There's a warmth that grows towards that person. There's a sense of trust that increases towards that person. You may even say something like this. Since you did this for me, now I want to do this in gratitude for you. You see, that's exactly what Jesus is doing, right? He moves towards us as a servant, And then we experience what he gives us, and then we live in gratitude back towards him. That's what Jesus is up to. He's saying, receive the servant king, the true king, who brings real freedom. You know, know, if if Jesus would have come in power like the disciples wanted to, which... They wanted Jesus to overthrow the physical Roman Empire and establish a new one. If Jesus would have done that like they wanted, odds are they would have turned around and tried to conquer a neighboring nation within weeks. They would have tried to enslave somebody else. They wouldn't have been free. Not to mention, what about, if if all Jesus did was liberate them from Rome, what about their guilt? What about their shame? What about the fears and anxieties and worries of life? What about death? Instead this king he sets up a new kingdom, a parallel kingdom, and the operational power of this kingdom is sacrifice and service. It's a paradox. I'm the king, but I'm not like any king that you've met before. And and here's what I've discovered, that if the king that is higher than the heavens and yet comes so low, comes into your life, he will also turn you into a gentle king. You become this paradoxical royalty. The the, the way of Jesus, and and I think we have to continually remind ourselves of this, the way of Jesus is so different than the way of the world and it's so different than the way of other religions. The, The gospel... The gospel says that you and I are saved. We receive this king through weakness, not through strength. And that's the opposite of everyone else and everything else that you'll hear in this life. Every other philosophy, whether it's something that that you've discovered that's 2,000, 3,000 years old, or whether it's something that you cobbled together last week yourself, they all essentially say the exact same thing. I'm going to clean up my life. Salvation is going to come when I I do better this time. I'm going to be stronger this time. I'm going to be the best version of myself. I'll get saved through my strength. I I will be rescued. I'll fix what's broken through strength. I'll make myself stronger. But Jesus says the opposite. You aren't saved by strength. You're saved by grace. And the only way you ever access grace is by admitting your weakness. That's how we experience salvation. And this is what changes us. See, when we come through weakness, that's when we receive grace. And when we receive grace through weakness, it does does two things. It makes us simultaneously humble and confident. Strength can only do one or the other, never at the same time strength if you're being really strong well then you can you can be bold right you can be confident some people call that obnoxious right or when you fail in your strength you can be humiliated but you can't be both humble and confident but the paradox of grace does both are you humbled in weakness well yes of course I am when i admit my weakness when i lean into my weakness of course Of course, I am humbled. I won't take myself too seriously, right? This is the upside. If I'm humbled, I don't take myself too seriously. I'm able to admit that I'm wrong. I'm able to understand, like, I probably have some blind spots that I need to be made aware of. Like, that's what happens when you're humbled. But at the same time, in grace, in weakness, you have confidence. Because if you've truly received grace, if you've exposed your weakness to King Jesus then you've come to know he loves you, he accepts you, he's covered you. Like he sees you as you are and accepts you as you are and there's this deep sense that he'll never leave you. He's for you. There's this deep sense that things are gonna be okay, that things are gonna work out, that whatever's right in front of you doesn't have to be this way forever. And when you realize that, when you realize he's got you covered and he loves you just as you are right now, you start living like a prince. You start living like princesses. You start living like sons and daughters of the king. I love reading the New Testament and seeing people who got this, who understood it. The Apostle Paul is one of them. He's writing a letter to the church in Corinth. And when he was writing, he, he said something really powerful that reflects exactly what we're seeing here. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. I might have you um, just join me in saying one particular familiar word here. I'll give you the cue. But he says this, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about what? My weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. I'm made strong. You're made strong by your weaknesses. So the people, they cut palm leaves and they waved Jesus into Jerusalem welcoming the king into the city. And we do the same, welcoming him into our hearts. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Is he... King Jesus, to you? If you wrestle with that question, remember he comes as a gentle king. Lord, this morning we gather in this space, all of us, different experiences with you, some of us maybe can wholeheartedly say, Yes, you have authority, and I've given you authority over my life. Others of us, we might be saying, You did, and then I took it back. And maybe today is a morning when we just stop and say, That's right. I have forgotten my king, mistook him for a buddy or a friend. And we need to put you back in that pos- position or that posture of king in our lives. And for others in the room, maybe for the first time, there's this desire, this inkling to say yes to you, saying yes to Jesus and saying, I want you to be the king of my life. You are unlike any other king. You are unlike any other authority. And whether this is the first time or the 50th time, Jesus, we place you on the throne of our hearts to rule our lives. In your name, amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? Really looking forward to this Holy Week. It's going to be really amazing. And uh, I encourage you guys, when we're done today, feel free to linger and see friends, meet new friends. There's refreshments in the lobby, all kinds of great things. and. We um, just encourage you to invite some friends next Sunday to Easter. It's a great time to invite a friend or a family member uh, and introduce them to just who Jesus is. And I promise I won't embarrass you if you do. So, um, But as you go, let me offer this benediction to you. If you're willing to hold out your hands, I offer this to you. May you be men and women who experience the power of weakness. And may you offer the seat on the throne of your life to King Jesus in his name. Amen. 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 Thanks so much for being here, everybody. (laughs) See you guys next Sunday. See you later.